So, first, uh, welcome, a uh, very warm welcome to Gaia House and to this retreat. And to begin with some introductions. Um, for those of you who haven't met us before, uh, my name's Christina Feldman, and co-teaching uh, together with John Teasdale, many of you will be familiar with. Uh, during the weekend, Claire, who is here, has very kindly offered to lead a mindful movement session <coughs> once a day during the weekend. And also Willem and Allison, who are here, will also be helping John and I with uh, a couple of the group interviews. And that's all the introductions, isn't it? So many of you, of course, are very familiar with silent retreats and how they unfold. But some of you, I'm aware, are quite new to the retreat environment and sort of landscape. Um, and it can all, I know, feel pretty strange when you come into a place like Gaia House, if this is your first retreat. Um, you know, it can be, take you aback a little bit, and there can even be some apprehension about what on earth this weekend is really, long weekend is really all about. First of all, I want to really encourage you to relax and feel at ease. And the strangeness most likely will dissipate over the next few days, but Maybe it won't. Maybe you'll leave on Sunday and it'll still feel pretty strange and that's also okay. But just so that you know that what we're doing here on retreat, we are not asking you to do anything at all that we will not be doing. That this is really a, almost like a community project, we might say. So this evening, what we'd like to do is to give you an overview of the retreat, to introduce the template of the practice of insight meditation that we will be engaging in, to look at some of the background of this practice, to give it a context, and also, hopefully, and this will go on over the weekend, to explore the possibilities of the practice. But this evening I would like to just more specifically focus upon the origins and the practice of mindfulness. Now over these few days you will hear John and I making you know, quite a few references to the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha. Now, just to really acknowledge that we do this, we don't have any kind of undercover agenda to convert any of you to Buddhism. But what we do want to do is to communicate to you the depth of this teaching and what it can offer. You know, recently, some of you may have also seen this, I, I read an article in the Guardian newspaper which talked about the newest trend to come out of America called mindfulness, which they, was invented 25 years ago, the journalist went on to report to us. And I, I, was, I must admit, I did feel initially slightly affronted, you know, and I, and I wrote back to this journalist and I said, you know, you have missed off two zeros. Um, but I didn't get a reply, obviously. But what did happen 25 years ago, which is very, very much worth, you know, or 25, 30 years ago, very much worthy of acknowledging and honoring was that there was the bringing of more traditional and classical mindfulness practice into many, many different contexts that it had never been in before. You know, the field of psychology, the field of medicine, 
And, you know, those 25, 30 years ago was really the beginning of making some very deeply important, significant bridges between what on one hand was an Eastern classical tradition and beginning to look at what in that Asian classical tradition could actually serve people well living in this culture um, with the minds and the bodies that we live with and all that our minds and bodies could experience. Um, Now, in truth, as I mentioned, the, the teaching of mindfulness does have a very, very long history. And when it was introduced or really articulated, in a sense, by the Buddha 2,500, 2,600 years ago, it was a very radical teaching in that culture and that time. But the teaching of mindfulness and the teaching of insight meditation, which is one of the practices which really emphasizes mindfulness, it had really a very, very simple core. It was a response to the reality of suffering. And it began as a means of offering a path to the end of suffering. I remember Daniel Goleman, some of you will be familiar with his work, he was very much in India kind of around the same same period of time that I was living there for some, practicing there for some years. And he, he spoke of his surprise when he traveled to India as a graduate psychology student to discover that the basic questions around the psychology of the mind, understanding the mind, had really been explored over millennia, and that there had developed in Asia this really quite elegant map of understanding and, and, and uh, understanding the mind And in that map, very systematic development of the mind as a response to suffering. Now, the Buddha essentially spoke about the healing of inner torment and taught a path that really could be practiced by anyone. No need to be a Buddhist, no need to be a monastic, In fact, all that is needed is simply the reality of having a mind and a body and a genuine willingness, a genuine willingness to commit ourselves to a journey of awakening and understanding. I think sometimes people use this this word Buddhism, you know, kind of very one-dimensionally. In fact, of course, the very word Buddhism really didn't come into... I mean, it was brought into the English language by these English folks who went to India and discovered Buddhism. You know, before that, there wasn't actually Buddhism. But I think what there has always been over 2,600 years is a path of understanding that has always been in a process of translation. You know, when you look at where the Buddha started in India as that teaching of understanding suffering, its causes, and the path to its end, as it kind of moved out of India into China, into Tibet, into Japan, into Sri Lanka, into Western cultures, there's always been this process of translation going on. And that process of translation is something that is continuing and Part of that translation at the moment, or one part of it, is certainly this dialogue that is very much alive between contemporary um, uh, psychological treatments and the practice of mindfulness. And in a way, in that dialogue, I think personally think that both traditions are being enriched. Now, one thing I would really like to emphasize this evening, and, and and I do this in case anybody didn't read the small print in the program. 
over this these few days, we are not endeavoring or offering any clinical applications of mindfulness. In fact, if you ask us questions about clinical applications of mindfulness, we will probably sort of frown and give you sort of dirty looks. But hopefully we won't go that far. But, but anyway, just to make it clear, that's not what, this, what these few days is about. We are not here. You know, because John and I both find that when we offer these retreats, um, you know, that really do have an emphasis on MBCT and MBSR practitioners participating, that many people come in, of course, there's a lot of questions about applications of mindfulness. Why wouldn't there be? This is also a work in progress. You know, it's not as if everybody has all the answers. And so sometimes people say or, or imagine they're going to feel a little bit disappointed if we won't give any sort of clinical application answers. So on one level, we're not doing that, but on the deepest level, we are actually teaching clinical applications of mindfulness. Because I think all of us know, any of you who work in the fields of mindfulness, who work in the fields of responding to suffering, know that the understanding of mindfulness is an incredibly personal inner journey. And that it begins with us. And that the more we deeply understand our own minds, and the more deeply we have committed ourselves to cultivating our own capacities to be present, to be awake, to be mindful, that, quite frankly, is as good as we're going to be as a therapist or someone who can offer this to others. So in in many ways, you know, and this is so true in this teaching, the emphasis and the onus has always been upon the experiential understanding of our own minds, our own hearts, the way that our minds and hearts are relating to this world, understanding how we're creating and constructing our world moment to moment, the more deeply we understand that then for those of you who work in clinical settings, I deeply trust that this incredibly enriches your capacity to help others on that journey of understanding. 2,600 years ago, people faced in in many ways the same challenges and the same dilemmas that we all face in our own lives. We're born into and live in a world that we cannot always control. An unpredictable life that often refuses to cooperate with our hopes and our desires and our longings for certainty and safety. We face, just as people faced 2,600 years ago, the age-old disappointments, sometimes not getting what we want and at times getting what we don't want. Some things it feels like last too long and others simply don't last long enough. We face the very timeless dilemmas and the questions that arise from them of knowing that our bodies experience what all bodies experience, both lovely sensations and also the experiences of aging and sickness and death. Impermanence is something we welcome, of course, when we're in the midst of difficult events. Impermanence at times terrifies and disturbs us when this inevitable law of change touches all that we love and are attached to. Like people throughout time, we live with a mind that often feels like a mystery to us, a mind that at times can be so creative and reflective and clear, and the same mind, it seems, that can be such a prisoner of of mental habits, of emotional chaos, of obsession, preoccupation. So how do we respond to that? 
you know, we respond just as people throughout all recorded times have responded. And there are a, va- a range of different responses that we might find ourselves engaging in or being familiar with. And the Buddha said that some of these responses to suffering, some of them lead to more suffering, and that some of them lead to the end of suffering. And so one of the responses to the difficult that the Buddha talked about is kind of the classic pathway of despair, of depression. You know, the feeling that life is unfair, that I'm hopeless, that I'm powerless, that nothing can ever change, the sort of resignation, the, the lifelessness. He said another of the responses to suffering, the difficult that arises, is the response of anger. That, you know, this shouldn't be happening this way. You know, this shouldn't be happening to me. This is not how things are supposed to be. And how the response of anger so often takes us into that whole territory of, of blame and aversion and resistance. He spoke about the response. Well, actually, he didn't speak about the response. <laughs> and this is one that I've added in as being a classical pathways. is the pathway of guilt in the face of the difficult. You know, I've done something to deserve this. You know, I'm, I'm unworthy, you know. I'm, I'm hardly even surprised, you know, that life feels so miserable. You know, because somehow I must have done something to, to warrant this through my own imperfections. And the Buddha said that these are the ways of, these are the responses that actually compound suffering. They don't lead to the end of the suffering, but they actually compound it. You know, I think it was might have been Freud who once said that 25% of suffering in this life is, is kind of intrinsic to having a body and a mind and living in an uncertain world. And the other 75% of suffering in this life is born of trying to avoid the first 25%. But the Buddha also talked about another way of responding to suffering. And, and actually this is where uh, the kind of classical practices and pathways of meditation and the, the pathways of applied mindfulness interventions. It's a pathway where they come together. And the Buddha talked about the pathway of investigation, of compassion, of understanding, of bringing mindfulness into the very places that feel so difficult to be with. He said these are the ways of healing, the ways of ending pain. And it is this pathway of investigation which is so much stressed in this teaching as being the pathway that offers the possibility of transformation. And I think that it is it has always been that possibility of transformation that has brought people into quite classical meditation settings. But it's also that possibility of change, of transformation, that brings many people into more clinical situations where mindfulness is offered. That may be suffering... Maybe the unsatisfactoriness, maybe the difficult and the painful can be understood in an entirely new way. Maybe it really is possible to transform our own hearts and minds. Now this ancient pathway of learning to understand our heart, to understand our mind, to befriend our mind, to befriend and transform our heart, really begins with this very simple step of just what we're doing here. We learn to stop. We just learn to stop for a little time. We stop running. We stop avoiding. We stop pursuing. We stop following pathways of distractedness. We just learn to stop a little. 
And that stopping that we're doing here on a retreat is really the first step of stepping out of the power of, of restlessness and agitation. And we learn in this practice to turn our attention to what is without aversion, without fear, without demand that this moment should be other than it is. We learn to turn our attention to this moment with interest, with curiosity, with kindness to the landscape of our own hearts and minds. And in many ways, this is the essence of mindfulness. You know, it's like as one Zen teacher said, he said, to, the mind, to know the mind of another is to be wise. To know your own mind is to be enlightened. And I think we can acknowledge that. I mean, in a very real way, how can we truly, really understand the mind or the heart of another unless we understand our own mind and heart? And, and in, in, really, in really exploring our own minds and hearts, as you inevitably do in meditation practice, you know, there isn't anything much else to do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in inevitably exploring your own mind and heart, what you really begin to see is how much your mind, how much your heart is living in a state of potentiality. How much our mind holds the potential to inflict profound psychological and emotional vandalism upon ourselves. And how our mind and our heart equally holds the potential for remarkable clarity and compassion, for calmness and for insight. Nyana Panikatera, who is one of the great elders in this, in this tradition, he said there are, there are really three steps to awakening and to liberation. He said one is to know the mind, and in this teaching, mind and heart are used interchangeably, to know the mind, to be mindful of the mind, to shape the mind, and to liberate the mind. Now, knowing our minds, knowing our hearts, this is where we all begin in meditation practice. We, we, are, we learn to be still. We learn to connect. We learn to, to listen inwardly. We're learning to be mindful. And in doing that, we start to really see the pathways that our thoughts take. We start to, to know the emotions, the winds of the emotions that, that run through our minds and hearts. We get a sense of the changes, the remarkable changes and shifts that our minds, our hearts can go through in a single hour, a single day. From calm to agitated, from contracted to spacious, from dull to enlivened. But this is the work of mindfulness, just to know this. Just to know it. Without judgment, without blame. It is a step of befriending the mind, befriending the heart. It is also a step of kindness and compassion. You know, the Dalai Lama once said that if you really, really want to understand what compassion is, he says, look into the eyes of a mother or a father as they cradle their ill and, and crying child. And in a way, that is the kind of quality of mindfulness, the quality of connectedness that we bring to hold our own minds and hearts just with that simple tenderness, kindness. I mean, I'm sure we can all acknowledge you know, that there is so much in life that can torment us. Difficult people, different difficult events, different difficult experiences, not getting what we want. But in truth, we probably all acknowledge that really nothing can torment us so much as our own mind can. And also that there is much in life that can delight us. You know, lovely people, lovely events, lovely experiences. But also there is nothing in this life that can bring so much happiness as a well-trained and understood mind. 
a well-trained and understood heart. You know, and the Buddha put this very succinctly. He said, I said, he said, I know of no single thing that can cause so much harm as an untrained mind. He also said, I know of no single thing that can be of so much benefit and bring so much happiness as a well-trained mind. So the, this is the first kind of step in, in mindfulness. It's the first step in insight practice, to know the mind, to know the moment, to know things just as they are. The second step is to shape the mind. Now, this, again, may be a more unfamiliar concept. And some people, you know, have a kind of resistance to shaping the mind. They think, oh, no, that's manipulation. You know, that's kind of interference. It's, it's doing something with what is. However, I think as you will come to know over these next few days, most of it won't be news, our mind, our heart, of course, is always being shaped by something. And very often our mind and heart is being unconsciously shaped by habitual patterns and reactions. Wanting, aversion, anxiety, fear, agitation. As the Buddha said, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. So the journey of mindfulness, we might say the journey of insight meditation, is a journey from the mind, the heart, being unconsciously shaped by these habitual reactions rooted in the past to being conscious and awake and responsive to the present. Bhavana, you know, the word in Pali for meditation is bhavana. It means to bring into being, to cultivate. And that is really what we do in meditation practice. We cultivate all that is conducive to well-being. Clarity, stillness, kindness, investigation, interest, calmness. Because we see that in this life that is so unpredictable, we are actually not helpless. In this life that often feels so ungovernable, we are actually not powerless because we have the possibility of cultivating a very sustained, intentional mindfulness that is the doorway to insight. It's the doorway to understanding. And Nyanapanika said the third step in this practice is to liberate the mind, to liberate the heart from confusion, from fear, from delusion, from a sense of imprisonment, to liberate the mind, to be as a, as a Buddhist, as a mind can be, as a heart can be, radiant, lum, luminous, limitless, calm. So we have a, a journey in front of us over this next few days, and John is going to continue. <laughs> Thanks, Christina. Just to check, can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. So let me begin by adding my own uh, very warm welcome to you all. Um, I know that um, almost half of you, I think, may have never been to Gaia House before, so a particular welcome to you. And to those who've been before, welcome back. It's, It's lovely to have you all here. Christina described um, the retreat as in many ways like a community project, something that we'll be working on together to create an environment which will allow us to learn, to know, to relate to our experience in ways that are much less easy to cultivate in an other environment. And What I want to speak about are some of the ways in which each of us can contribute to the creation of that community project, this environment to support our mutual learning and exploration. And obviously there are the um, specific practices we'll be um, focusing on and which we'll be giving specific instructions for But there are also 
certain very general qualities of mind and heart that um, really the encouragement is to try to nurture and cultivate in each of our waking moments here as a support to the general purpose. One of them obviously is mindfulness and you will hear us um, giving you very enthusiastic encouragement and not to say nagging to maintain some continuity of mindfulness moment to moment to moment particularly at the beginning of the retreat and I think Christine has outlined why that might be so important but the other quality of mind and heart I'd like to mention is perhaps less obviously related to the kind of purposes we have but it's equally important as mindfulness and that's the quality of kindness the simple intention of goodwill and perhaps surprisingly um, this intention this state of heart and mind is emphasized over and over again by the Buddha as the most central way to liberate the mind and heart short of the insights that come with full awakening Um, there is a power to it which um, we can touch on why it may be but over the times we've given these retreats together I think we found ourselves emphasizing this aspect of the general state of heart and mind more and more so I would encourage you to bear in mind the conscious intention to cultivate kindness goodwill to yourselves to all beings you encounter both human and non-human and particularly to your experience we can as Christina said be quite harsh to our own experience and the invitation here in bringing kindness to experience is really to allow it to be as it is not to demand of it not to need it that it be something other than it is not to engage with a struggle in it just to as best we can consciously welcome each and every one of our experiences so these two general qualities of mind mindfulness and kindness and as much as possible maintaining the intention to cultivate them moment by moment by moment then there are the more specific um, aspects which again really the creation of this supportive environment depends on your active willing um, collaboration with the first one I'd like to touch on perhaps because it may strike you as the strangest if you've not been in this situation before is the silence I think the managers will have described what this actually involves and I'll touch on those briefly shortly but I really wanted to stress just how important the silence is because in and of itself maintaining this noble silence which we create here has an amazingly but subtle powerfully effect on our minds it allows us to connect with what is deep within our minds and hearts it enables us to draw on resources that we may not even suspect we have it also of course once we drop the external chatter and the internal chatter also quietens as well as the mind calming and settling patterns of mind that may have been covered over with our busyness and our mental chatter begin to be revealed and that's really part of the work we'll be involved with so silence is really crucial and I would urge you invite you really strongly to try to maintain it continuously there is this temptation perhaps you know to just call um, the family call friends on your mobile phone feeling that you know just a few minutes there's no harm in that 
But it's very much like the situation where you're trying to light a fire with rubbing sticks together. You know, if you're rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and your arms are feeling a bit tired and you think, oh, well, I'll just take a little break from this, then as soon as you stop, the sticks start cooling down and you don't pick up where you did when you stopped rubbing. You're back to the beginning again. And each time we interrupt our silence, either by speaking to someone here or on our mobile phones, um, we really push ourselves back a long way. So really, as a gift to yourself, as a gift to other people, please observe this guideline as conscientiously as you can. So no um, communication, verbal or non-verbal with each other, um, only when specifically invited to by a manager or a teacher, um, no use of mobile phones. If you need to make phone calls to let people know you're going to be out of touch for the next few days, please do it tonight. Um, if you can avoid you know, excessive reading, you know, the odd page or two each day of an improving text, wonderful. But beware of losing yourself in reading, which can be a, a way of escaping things that are coming up. Um, particular dangers when you're alone with other people in your room or if you go out for a walk and bump into people out there. So please, as best you can, be really conscientious about that as an act of kindness, not as a big heavy injunction. The other thing about the retreat, it's very obvious, is um, that we've moved away from our everyday responsibilities. Um, and so I want to touch on this aspect, the simplicity of the retreat, in more detail. You've probably heard it said that mindfulness is very simple. It's just not easy. And one of the things that makes it not easy when we're out in our everyday lives is the fact that we're constantly planning, anticipating, problem-solving, multitasking, working through our to-do list. Here, the invitation is to just let go of all that stuff, to actually use the beautiful simplicity of this environment where we're physically removed from our everyday concerns, so as much as we can just consciously let go of those concerns so that our minds are freed of them as well as our bodies. And actually just surrender to the schedule. There's no decision-making required. There are only a limited number of choices you have to make when you hear a bell. It might be getting up to put your clothes on, coming into the hall or going to eat. Apart from those, mostly you'll be given specific instructions. And there's a beautiful release in many ways. One can just sort of surrender to the schedule, not have to do this constant planning and anticipation. So really make use of that aspect of the retreat. And then there are the precepts, which again I think the managers will have touched on. And these are a way to actually embody the kindness that I've stressed so much. So they're really best approached as in the spirit of acts of kindness to oneself and to each other as gestures towards creating this supportive community that's going to nurture us all over this time rather than as heavy thou shouldn'ts or thou shouldst. The first of these precepts that I'm sure the managers have touched on is that of non-harming, which is clearly an embodiment of this spirit of kindness, gentleness, respect for all beings that we encounter, human and non-human. In its extreme, it obviously means not killing um, beings so that you know if, if we're frightened of spiders and one appears in the shower you know trying to as best we can gently escort it somewhere at a distance with a piece of paper maybe rather than eliminate it from the universe um, but more often it's not going to be quite so extreme it's really as much as we can consciously cultivating a sense of goodwill to those whom we pass to the creatures in the garden 
that we'll encounter. Second precept, again, is very much in the same spirit, which is that of not taking things which are not freely offered, which means not stealing, but also not borrowing, in inverted commas, things like toothpaste or shampoo. And again, the point of this is it helps create this sense of security, of ease, in which we can let down our guards a little bit. We don't need to watch our backs quite so much. And that eases the opening of the heart. The third precept, that of avoiding sexual misconduct, which basically means on the retreat, avoiding any intentional sexual or romantic behavior. Again, this is basically a way of creating this sense of safety, um, of allowing us to relax so that our hearts can open without needing to be looking behind our shoulders, over our shoulders, making sure we're not the focus of somebody else's sexual or romantic interests. Fourth precept is, excuse me, Sorry. The, the fourth precept is that of right speech, which basically is fairly simple as we're observing noble silence. That's the main uh, way in which we'll meet that precept. And finally, um, the precept of refraining from taking alcohol or non-prescription medications, non-prescription drugs. Obviously, please, please keep... Me- taking your prescription medication, um, but really avoid um, all other drugs that might cloud the mind because basically we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, We're putting in a lot of gentle effort, a lot of time to try to cultivate clarity and sensitivity in our minds. It would just sort of work against all that to um, obscure our minds with drugs and alcohol. It also would make us much more likely to violate some of the other precepts because it loosens our inhibitions. So really approaching the whole endeavor, these things that I've described, as a sort of community project, as Christina described it, as acts of kindness, essentially, um, and trying to embody that sense of goodwill, warmth, care and kindness in everything we do as best we can. And when we can't, then being kind to ourselves for not being able to be kind. So let me wish you a very kindly and fruitful retreat. Thank you. Christina. So we will end the the evening uh, with just a short city meditation, but before then you might want to just stand up for a moment or two and stretch your body. Over the days, we will be giving some quite comprehensive instruction about both sitting and walking meditation. And tomorrow morning at some point, for those of you who are new, we'll also talk some about sitting posture. Um, But this evening, I, I know many of you are probably tired. I know many of you have come from work and traveled today. So I'd like to end the evening with just a kind of short, just guided meditation. So if you would just take just a few moments just to quite gently and calmly settle into a posture, settle your body into a sitting posture that feels both relaxed and alert. Let your your back, 
your neck be upright, your shoulders just a little bit back, your chest open. And just checking in with your body, just being mindful, listening to your body. And being aware if there are any places where there's any tension or holding or tightness. Be mindful of your shoulders. Let them soften, relax. Your belly, your abdomen. Just softening, relaxing. Your face, your jaw. Your hands. Finding that balance in your body. We feel very present, very upright, alert. Also touching into a very deep sense of ease and relaxation. It's being able to rest in being still. With nowhere to go. For a few moments, just expanding the field of your awareness, bringing your attention to the sense of space, spaciousness around you, the stillness, the calmness around you. Cultivating that receptive awareness. So attending just to listening, any sounds that arise and pass, also listening to the silence, Relaxing into that sense of quietude, simply being present. Being aware of the state of your mind as you sit here, whether the mind feels alert or dull, whether your mind feels calm or agitated, whether your mind feels spacious or contracted. Just knowing that Simply, calmly. Just being mindful of the mind. We can 
can shape the landscape, the feeling of your mind, your heart in this moment. Knowing that without judgment, resistance, without being lost. Bringing that same calm, kind, curious attentiveness back into your body. Aware of the landscape, the sense of your whole body. Mindful of the places where your body touches the ground or the chair, the warmth, the pressure, those contact points. The touch of the air, your clothes, on your skin, Mindful of your body internally. Just the range of different sensations that are present. Pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That same non-interfering attentiveness. For the last few minutes of the sitting, cultivating a more one-pointed attentiveness to be mindful of your breathing. Just tracing the movement of a single breath from its beginning to its ending with your attention. Breathing in with mindfulness, breathing out with mindfulness. Breathing in with sensitivity, breathing out with sensitivity.
So tomorrow morning, the wake-up bell goes 6.15 for 6.45, sit before breakfast. In the sitting period after breakfast, we will um, give much more comprehensive instructions about the practice. But something I'd like to invite you to take with you as you leave the hall tonight is just really the invitation to calm down. <laughs> you know, this is the first job of everybody in meditation practice, is just to calm down. And one of the ways that is really supportive of that is to calm your body down. You know, it, it's very, it happens very often, you know, that you come in from a busy life and, you know, a lot to do and places to go, you know, and all that stuff. You know, you get that energy. Well, here, you know, you haven't got many places to go and there's no hurry. So kind of calming down the sense of hurry is really helpful. It's really, really such an ally in the practice to bring your mind and body together. You know, to be mindful of your body as you get up from the cushion, as you, as you leave the hall, as you uh, go to your room. See if it is possible to have that sense of gathering and collecting your attentiveness and really bringing your mind into your body, bringing them together. And, you know, so, so not hurrying, but sensing how, how possible it might be and the many moments when it's not doesn't feel possible just to be present in your body as you walk, as you move, as you go to bed and seeing if it is possible when you get up in the morning to begin your day with that sense of intentionality. What does it really feel like to, to live in this body? You know, to inhabit this body, however it is. You know, there's a, a wonderful piece of a poem. It says, you know, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And I'm sure that's something many, many of us can relate to in our lives. We're living a short distance from our body. We visit occasionally, usually when it's in pain. But the rest of the time, you know, we actually got other things to be doing, it feels like. Not so much else to be doing here. Get up in the morning with that sense of intentionality. Let yourself move at a pace. You know, you don't have to be super slow to be mindful. But you do have to have the intention to be mindful, to be mindful. So see if it's possible to get up in the morning with that intention and to bring it into your work period. You know, and again, this doesn't mean going super slow. I can absolutely promise you that the cook's will really not be that happy if you only manage to chop one carrot in 45 minutes, you know. And that's not a kind of embodiment, look how mindful I am, you know, one carrot in 45 minutes. Well, actually, it doesn't really help us to live that kind of attitude. But, but to, to know what we're doing as we're doing it, to know where we are when we're there, to bring your attention, keep coming back, keep coming back. You know, it's not to say that you'll be perfect at this from the word get, you know, from the get-go. You know, you'll find there's a, a thousand moments. You know, your attention doesn't feel just a short distance from your body, it feels miles. You know, many moments when your attention gets lost, many moments when your attention is 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 leaning forward, leaning forward or leaning backward. But that is what this practice is about. That is the kind of kindness and the the art of this practice is the willingness and also the invitation to begin again to begin again to begin again to come back you know this is an incredibly forgiving practice you know no one is keeping count of the number of moments of your absence and you really don't need to take that burden upon yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> So just being able to begin again, come back, having the patience and the kindness to do that, settling into the silence, finding your way around, taking care of anything you need to take care of tonight, and we will see you in the morning, and I hope that you sleep well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.